This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Helen is off today, but Nina and I are here to talk about Addicted to Ideology with Gabor Mate. This was Nina's pick, and Nina is first up. Yeah, I suppose this is a video from a, a few years ago now, but um, a lot of the issues, it's a short video. I mean, we can put it in the link in the Patreon, I think. Um, probably people have come across Gabor Mate before. He's a Canadian uh, sort of writer and intellectual, and I, and I suppose, you know, we would say maybe kind of activist or, or medical person who works with um, people with addiction. Um, and... I suppose the reason why I picked this, um, apart from that we had trouble finding <laughs> the right version of the thing I originally suggested, is because lately I seem to be having a lot of conversations with people about the intersection between things like precarity, ADHD, which is something that um, Mate has also written about, um, addiction, uh, technology, medication and ideology and uh, it was interesting to come across this video by Mate because I hadn't really seen him make the link uh, it's a, it's a simple response to a question asked by someone from Rebel Wisdom about whether ideology could also fit into Mate's definition of addiction and Mate takes a, a kind of uh, takes the idea of addiction as being a response to um a kind of a problem of human development to do with childhood trauma. Uh, and in that sense, he links uh, lots of addictions together. In this video, he repeats the idea that all addictions look very similar. It doesn't particularly matter whether you're addicted to gambling or drink or drugs or or, or, um, or sex or, or anything else. Um, and so I suppose given this kind of uh, quite you know, in some ways reductive, but also expansive definition of addiction. They, uh, the interviewer and Mate talk about social media um, and the way in which the addicted brain functions as um, in this context, basically, and how ideology uh, might work. And I thought it might be a good um, opportunity for us to have a conversation about what we mean by ideology today and how we see it operating, because this is the other side of things that I've been talking about, particularly with my friend uh, Lev Parker, who's the editor of Morbid Books, who's a close friend of mine um, and has published things by me and also has a new book out, which is extremely funny, I have to say, extremely um, riotous, transgressive book um, called Fourth Industrial Revolution Pimp, which is about the past two years and COVID. Um, and I often speak to Lev about these sorts of uh, issues and I suppose in a kind of R.D. Langian way, how we situate particular disorders which seem to kind of be prevalent. So many people are being diagnosed with ADHD or self-diagnosing or ADHD in particular seems to be one of those conditions that characterizes our age, whether we're talking about children at school or adults being kind of uh, somehow given this diagnosis and then also being given particular forms of medication, um, most of which uh, uh, resemble um, to a greater or lesser degree the street drug speed or amphetamine or they're a kind of amphetamine 
and they have slightly different names in the UK and the US. Um, and predictably, I think there's a bigger political question about these forms of medicalization. And it is a shame Helen isn't here because I'd quite like the psychoanalytic take on Mate because I'm sure there are some critical uh, lines that could be taken against uh, what is, after all, quite a sort of, um, you know, a, a simple argument about trauma and addiction uh, and the idea of uh, that something is uh, goes wrong in um, in childhood. Um, and I suppose the political question in relation to ideology might involve the idea that ideology itself or the adherence to a particular position can in and of itself become addicting um, or may be amenable to this kind of, um, um, I suppose, analysis. Um, and in this video, Mate talks with the interviewer about ideas of pseudo-empowerment, um, of uh, pseudo-pleasure in relation to genuine pleasure, and they talk about this in relationship to social media affirmation, the, the idea of likes and all of these things that we're familiar with now, the idea of the kind of dopamine hit, the, the retweet, I suppose, the, the idea also um, of how this, uh, what they call a vast aggregation, um, mitigates against the, the kind of uh, social and interpersonal behaviours that depend upon seeing someone else's face, all of the micro distinctions that occur when we listen to somebody and we hear them properly. Uh, we know full well that questions of tone are basically impossible on the internet. Emojis were sort of invented to kind of compensate for the absence of, of tone. Um, we know that people tend to uh, be extremely mean in their interpretation of other people. They often take uh, the very opposite of a principle of charity or a principle of mercy, which if you study philosophy, you'll be familiar with um, the idea that you take the, the best possible version of your opponent's argument and indeed you give them uh, credit as a thinking and, and, and speaking being. Um, and on the internet, often we have something like the principle of spleen, as I once coined it, which is the idea that uh, the, the person you're supposedly opposing, um, you, you treat them with the kind of meanest possible uh, uh, sort of outlook and, and you think that everyone is acting in bad faith and uh, that it's okay to misrepresent other people and, you know, to, to kind of, um, I don't know, argue against a view that they don't quite have and all of these kinds of things that we see uh, all the time. Um, it's obviously much easier to do that when you're not face to face with somebody. It's obviously uh, the internet is a kind of uh, maelstrom of um, the id uh, so all of these kind of uh, desires and, and angers and, and potential hatreds and personal pathologies are taken out in this uh, arena. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it hasn't really kind of got uh, any better <laughs> since this video was made uh, with Gabon Mate. And I, and I suppose I, I come up against this very simple question all the time at the moment. And I'll just finish with this point, which I suppose is, is to do with the question of, of, of truth and what the truth of a particular situation might be. Um, and of course, in some ways, it's a very naive question. We're supposed to live in a post-truth era. We're supposed to understand cynically that everything is just a matter of uh, perspective or power and, 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 you know, narrative. And we know that everybody's segregated into kind of uh, little... Um, 
you know, tribal sort of echo chambers and, you know, there's a kind of uh, a, a war going on all the time about how things are perceived. And, and often if people are kind of activists and they've got a particular axe to grind, it seems very obvious that they will stop at nothing to try to get their particular cause um, promoted, even if that means lying about their opponents or misrepresenting the facts or, you know, uh, overplaying their hand in various ways, uh, misattributing harm or, you know, overestimating harm or whatever. We see this all the time um, with use of statistics or um, claims about uh, not the arguments that people are making, but about the people themselves. You know, we, we're back to kind of basic ad hominem type fallacies often and this kind of thing, guilt by association and all these other things. And I suppose the the question then of truth is is something like, you know, is it possible to determine more or less the truth of a particular um, situation or a particular event uh, in such a way that kind of goes beyond the the affirmation of tribal or partisan positions? Um, you know, regardless of what we might want to be true or that we des- what we might desire or what we might think confirms our biases, but rather to understand that you know, things happen in the world <laughs> that go beyond or um, go beyond how we might want them to 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 go, I suppose. And it, it seems very, you know, and, and that in a sense that truth might actually be um, opposed to to what we might want, you know, that actually the more we un- come to understand, the, the less we, we might like um, what we uh, what we understand, and you know, science in this way might be seen as something that kind of tells us things we don't we don't want to know. Um, and you know, to just to bring it back to this question of of addiction and ideology is 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 what happens, I suppose, when you keep repeating things that aren't true um, as a way of convincing yourself and others in your in group, um, and how we can all perhaps get to a position, not where we're exempt from ideology, you know, we're all kind of bound by particular, you know, preemptive positions and, and beliefs and commitments, um, but to some sort of space where we can even have a conversation about what might be true or not, rather than simply saying this is true and this isn't. Um, and I suppose it's back to a kind of philosophical or discursive space where where even the possibility of a discussion is possible without calling your opponent like a, a Nazi uh, or whatever. Um, so, and I, I don't quite know how this might relate to this question of addiction or these diagnoses. Um, and I wouldn't want to reduce politics to psychology um, or anything like this. At the same time, it seems clear that certain pathologies are being encouraged en masse online, intentionally or otherwise. Um, and this includes how people respond to political um, positions and political uh, situations. Um, so that's like, let's let's just open up with these kinds of um, questions, I think. Very interesting. All right, now it's my turn. In this YouTube video, Gabor Mate pitches ideology as an addictive coping mechanism. For Mate, it's a coping mechanism in at least two senses. It provides a sense of community and meaning to otherwise atomized individuals, and it helps people cope with traumatic experiences. The word ideology is used by Marxists to refer to the dominant hegemonic way 
of coping with life under capitalism. It's used by liberals to refer to any thick illiberal worldview. So for Marxists, liberalism is ideology, and for liberals, Marxism is. <laughs> Mate seems to have increased the appeal of his work by leaning on both uses of the term. To get a hearing from liberals, Mate pitches ideology as an online addictive rabbit hole. Atomized individuals seek community on social media, and they find it in the form of debased online political ideologies. The followers of these ideologies take pleasure in hating the same people and use the sense of camaraderie this produces to paper over their loneliness. Liberal centrists like this kind of argument as it helps them pathologize illiberal political actors and their followers. As the conversation goes on, Mate hints at the Marxist use of ideology. He slowly reveals that he doesn't think social media is the cause of ideological polarization, but a way of revealing the pain that is endemic in a society in which in-person human contact is increasingly rare and civil society organizations have broken down. Increasingly, his position leans on the concept of trauma. Trauma is a popular concept among liberals. Appeals to trauma have become an effective way of emotionally manipulating audiences and controlling discussions. Here Mate uses the concept to suggest that many people are failing to develop socially because of the way our society is structured. It's a clever rhetorical strategy. By pathologizing the online left and the right, Mate is able to reassure liberals, creating space for a critique of liberal society. He pathologizes Donald Trump and then uses the space that creates to pathologize Hillary Clinton. If you're willing to agree with liberals that their opponents are sick in the head, liberals are more willing to let you play doctor on them. At the end of the interview, Mate is asked about Jordan Peterson, and he pathologizes him as well. Over the course of the video, I was increasingly transfixed by Mate's tendency to pathologize. I started to wonder if I'd really understood the function of Mate's rhetorical approach. He seems to be making tactical concessions to liberalism to open the door to a left-wing critique, but there might be some liberalism baked in there. Mate always has more specific things to say about how particular individuals are pathological, but he speaks about social structures in a highly general, hands-off way. He never really gets at the economic causes of atomization. It's vaguely implied that these traumas have larger social causes, but they're never really drawn out. I once debated Mate's son, Aaron, on Katie Halper's show. We were discussing whether left-wing Americans ought to vote for Joe Biden. I argued that Biden would fail to improve material conditions, that the left would be blamed for his failures, and that a national swing to the right would follow. Aaron became very angry with me over the course of the discussion, and he used a lot of highly charged, moralizing language. It was very clear that Aaron felt that people who refuse to vote for Joe Biden are morally irresponsible. He wasn't really interested in engaging with structural arguments to do with how the economy and society evolved together. Instead, he echoed Noam Chomsky's anarchist moralizing about harm reduction. He criticized me for trying to predict the future, but he also suggested that it was important to vote against Trump because Trump might start a war with Iran in the future. I started my own PhD using a lot of liberal terminology to create space for bringing in more critical ideas. I pitched my PhD as a piece of work on the relationship between inequality and democracy hoping to argue that inequality creates intractable problems for liberal democracy. During my defense, one of my examiners asked me why there wasn't more Marxism in the thesis. 
The answer, truth be told, was a desire to avoid being pigeonholed. If you frame yourself as a critic of liberalism, liberals dismiss you as an ideological preacher. I want people to read my work to give my ideas a chance. But when you make these kinds of concessions, they not only limit the kinds of arguments you can make, they also gradually corrode your own ability to think in non-liberal terms. Ideology is seductive. If you're thinking like a liberal and you're having a lot of career success, liberal modes of thinking become a self-satisfying justificatory mechanism. I was fortunate that I had a heavy teaching load in the later years of my PhD, with lots of Marxism and ancient and medieval political theory. But a lot of people aren't so lucky, and the walls of liberal ideology start closing in. Their leftism degrades into a kind of debased anarchism, and liberal moralizing takes the place of structural analysis. It doesn't happen overnight, or all at once. It slowly creeps in. Many people operate for years in a liminal space with an incongruous mix of liberal and Marxist inclinations, presenting different faces at different moments. But the more one settles into the comforts of a professional social role, the more comforting the anarchist position becomes. It allows you to retain a pretense of radicalism while conceding to the liberals everywhere it counts. I don't blame people who fall into this. Every economic incentive pushes us there. It is no moral failure to go where the structural wind blows. When a person succumbs to ideology, they are not the perpetrator. Ideology is a coping mechanism, a way of dealing with a situation that is not of our own choosing. In many cases, the only alternative to ideology is some other addiction or death. The role of the theorist is not to vilify or perhaps even pathologize the victims of capitalism, but to remind us of our predicament, to invite us to, for a moment, lift the veil and taste life, however bittersweet that may be. Right. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, let's talk about liberalism and and truth, I think. I mean... You know, it's 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 interesting going back to Althusser's discussion of ISAs and the very you know famous uh, essay, um, which probably many people have read probably a while ago. Um, and you know, he opposes the ISAs to the repressive state apparatus, which is singular, and the ISAs are plural. And the question becomes one of interpolation. One is hailed as a particular kind of subject by education, by the church, and 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 you know, at least in his examples. Um, and I suppose one thing, just looking briefly a little bit back at Althusser's essay today, though I didn't have time to read through the whole thing again, was to think about how much more diffuse ideology seems to be today and whether we could talk about the internet as a whole as an ISA. Um, and I suppose this, this, this kind of permanent vigilance against liberalism, I also think is some, somehow occasionally suspect, like, you know, if you're on the left, being called a liberal is up there with, it's, I don't know what's worse, actually, being called a, a fascist or being called a liberal, <laughs> if you're on the left, or like the proper left. Um, and I think, you know, this, in relation to this question of, of truth, when we talked about, when we talk about historical materialism, or the idea of Marxism as a materialism, there is a kind of weird double game, I think, that's that's gone on there, which is, materialism somehow sort of stands in for reality, right? So it's like there's a kind of based aspect to being a Marxist, right? Materialism is to sort of to do with matter. Okay, it's not matter in the sort of Engels, you know, 
mod sense and people are very critical of Engel's concept of nature and no 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 it's a much more astute and and, and clever version of, of of nature or matter right it's it's dialectical it's historical you know that it's social there is no kind of reference to um you know actual matter or actual nature but there sort of is as well right because you know this is a this is a serious analysis of the reality of structural conditions and you know economic uh you know circumstances and the way in which this this conditions what people think and then their life chances and this you know that we're talking about real things and 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 you know and I, and I'm not I'm not even I'm not being sarcastic here and I'm, I think one of the one of the problems with the what ha, what has happened to materialism or historical materialism however we want to decide what the the based or or aspect that refers to a certain kind of reality however transformative transformable it is and of course marxism has to allow for the fact that um conditions even though they're not of our choosing are also transformable otherwise it's a kind of nihilism otherwise it's just a description of 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 a certain kind of reality um is to say something like you know is marxism uh, as 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 sort of described by people who call themselves marxists today still a materialism in any meaningful sense and if so what sense um and if it's such a bad thing to be a liberal if if the ideology of our time is liberalism and and liberal means two different things in the UK and the US although it's slowly come to mean the same thing in fact um and liberalism is something like the yeah the ideology of capital it 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 or gives you a particular image of the individual that sort of you know all the things we've talked about week on week um that people get what they deserve through hard work you know there's a particular notion of the human um but it's also tied up tied up with values like freedom of expression freedom of speech and and so so called liberal values you know which marx would argue are a kind of cover story for a sort of bourgeois um you know uh, bourgeois exploitation that gives itself this story you know and if you read um marx's books about liberalism um i'm thinking of that uh that main one in particular oh who writes the italian writer who writes the kind of devastating critique of liberalism who also writes the book about nietzsche lusordo um that you know this that this is how you understand liberalism liberalism is a kind of cover story an ideological cover story for the exploitation of 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 you know that capital you know that proceeds basically um i suppose you know well first of all can can you can i can you can anyone be poised on the the precipice of describing critically describing the ideology of our age without ourselves being kind of prey to one or other you know um it seems unlikely um and if you say something like people's ideology comes to justify the position that they find themselves in right let's say the older you get, the more established you get. Let's say you make enough money, um, you start to believe that you deserve it or that you have some kind of particular relationship to your economic position. Um, you know, is there any any way of kind of stepping back from from that, I suppose? Let's let's start with that one. Well, so 
when I use the, those terms, liberalism and Marxism, in that little spiel that I did, I'm mainly thinking about liberalism in terms of thinking about society as driven by individual choices, individual choices that morally we can evaluate, individuals as uh, acting kind of in an ex machina sense as if from outside, so they have total freedom to determine what they're going to do, what they're, how they're going to act upon the social world. And identifying Marxism more with a structural approach that focuses on how those particular decisions are shaped and come into being socially. That's not to say that there's no possibility of change on a Marxist view or on a materialist view. I also don't think it's to say that a Marxist or materialist view is sufficient to inform a philosophical perspective. It's mainly a way of, of debating over how it is that individuals come to take the kinds of decisions that they take. And it's a way of trying to, I think, remind people of the social conditions and structures that influence decisions and prevent people from jumping to blaming individuals, shaming individuals, moralizing about individuals. Uh, it's, it's a way of, of stopping that from happening, of muting that reaction, and giving us a chance to think about why did this thing really happen? What's the real cause of this, this behavior that we don't like? And what would be a more intelligent way of responding to it apart from signaling out the individual as reprehensible and, and saying they're bad and we don't like them? In terms of my own philosophy, I don't think Marxism really gives you much of a normative position. I don't think Marxism or materialism is sufficient to justify an attitude about what's good or what's valuable. And that requires some further philosophical moves. So in my own case, I think that descriptively, I have a lot of Marxist influence, but on a normative level, I have at least as much influence from uh, Greek, Greek political thought and especially Platonism. Uh, so that's kind of how I would, I would clarify the stakes there and how I use those terms. I think you're, you're right to point out that it's become difficult for these words to have the meanings that I'm, I'm using them in. And, and I often find when I have conversations with people about Marxism and liberalism, that there are preconceived definitions that make it very difficult to articulate a position and be understood. There is uh, such a, a quick impulse to identify liberalism with freedom in general. And so any critique of liberalism is pitched as a critique of freedom, free speech. So uh, really as a, as a critique of pluralism. So if we're associating liberalism, not with individualism, but with pluralism, and I think really liberalism has been associated with three different things, uh, individualism, pluralism, and the market. So I am, I like to call, think of myself as a bit of an illiberal pluralist. I like pluralism, but I'm not particularly keen on the market, and I'm not particularly keen on individualism. But I like pluralism. And I think you can, you can unpack that 
And part of the way that liberalism disciplines is by suggesting that there's no way you can have pluralism outside of it, that it's the only way to have pluralism. And therefore, if you want pluralism, you also have to support individualism in the market. So it's a way of fusing those positions together so that they become inescapable. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. As if all kind of pluralism, you know, the the fact that people have different positions or different outlooks or different religions or something somehow comes down to an individual decision that is only guaranteed by the freedoms, you know, presented by the by the market. So everything starts to look like a market choice, basically. Like free choice is reduced to the idea of consumer choice, and you know, and I, I think we're we're living in the apex of that <laughs> idea. The idea that everything is sort of looks a bit like consumer choice. You know, that all decisions have this structure. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I you know, I, I sort of read some John Gray, and and you know, he tries to sort of describe how a kind of post liberal defense of some aspects of liberalism might talk about pluralism and modus vivendi and these different ways of um, of of life, um, you know, without these kinds of uh, reductions. I mean, I think the, the, one of the complicated questions always comes in is like the when we're talking about human nature. Like, it's one thing to talk about kind of pluralism and the fact that there are different ways of living and different beliefs and different um, different desires, even often quite often quite radically opposed. You know, people have very different images of what a country is, what the world is, what life is, what their bodies are. Is there an afterlife and and so on, um, which which have effects on their on their behaviour, um, but when we're talking about a kind of philosophical um, approach, at some point we get down to these sort of very basic questions about what it means to be human, and I think a lot of the post liberal discussions at the moment are to do with a kind of um, trepidation or, or anxiety around the fact that. It seems like um, there is a, an idea of the human as kind of infinitely malleable, uh, prey to open to all kinds of um, technological and other transformations, which fundamentally mitigate against the idea that human beings have, uh, in the first place, a particular kind of body, that the human beings are sexed, and that, you know, we have the certain limitations, if you like, you know, so... I think a lot of post-liberals think that they're opposing something like this infinitely malleable image of the human, which, you know, you could describe as post-human or transhuman. And or this, this at least is what they are afraid of. This is what they fear. Um, you know, whether that's whether they are right to do so or not, I, I think is an, is an ongoing open question. But if we start going backwards and if we start saying, well, actually, we're not so different from who we were in 50 BC and, you know, actually myth and, and and stories and religion still make sense to us. You know, we were not so radically transformed by industrial society that we can't understand basic human emotions like envy or, I mean, you know, any of the things that people like Hobbes and, and, and early political thinkers, um, or much earlier than that as well, you know, that, that they will draw upon things like competition and things like, um, you know, different theories of, of desire. Um, if we permit, uh, or if we're interested in a kind of pluralism, we also have to say <laughs> that in a way, human nature is plural, right? And and this, I think, leads to problems with, you know, anyone, including McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre, who's a very interesting thinker, a very important thinker, who want to go back to thinkers like Aristotle, 
in some ways, but not in all ways, right? Because, you know, within that differentiated idea of human nature, of course, are distinctions that are made between men and women and, and slaves, you know, which almost nobody would uphold today, right? For good reasons. Um, and so I suppose whilst we might say differentiation and hierarchy between hum- human beings is not the same as pluralism, and we want to restrict pluralism to something like belief or practice, um, I, I, I do think there is a kind of uh, a problem. If, if, like, a, if we don't have a theory of human nature, then we are, we are implicitly saying that human beings are infinitely malleable, and we might go down that path. But B, if we do say there's a theory of human nature, it needs to be sufficiently broad to in- incorporate all of these other modes of living and, 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 you know, all of the situated contextual differences and meanings that, that human beings collectively and individually give to their own lives. So I wonder if we can have a suitably broad theory of human nature that permits these other things that doesn't end up being kind of an idealism or anything, you know, something like that. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I think that when we talk about the kind of overly malleable notion, it's interesting. A lot, that notion often comes from utopian socialists or uh, left anarchists. And yet, if that notion is true, then, of course, we can adapt to any form of society. Therefore, we can adapt to any form of industrial capitalism, no matter how brutal it is. And there's no reason to think that we would be in any way impelled to become socialists, uh, except insofar as socialism is pitched as a natural extension of of industrial capitalism, something which continues uh, an evolutionary process. I think that Marx's view, to a large degree, uh, impinged on, uh, relied on that not being the case, because Marx's view involved uh, critiques based on alienation and exploitation, which he associated with Roman notions of not feeling free, of feeling dominated. So, to a large degree, Marx's critiques of of capitalism were based on this idea that we were in some way, uh, we did in some way have some kind of human nature. And I think that's one of the things that separates him from the anarchists in the 19th century. I I think that, so in in thinking about McIntyre, McIntyre is influenced by Aristotle. He's also very, very much influenced by Aquinas. And I think that oftentimes people who like Aristotle but don't want the negatives with Aristotle go to Aquinas, and people who like Aquinas but don't want the negatives associated with Aquinas go with Aristotle. And what you get is a little bit of a Mott and Bailey where someone is a bit of an, an AA person who is sometimes an Aristotelian and sometimes a Thomist, depending on which position is more attractive in the given situation that they're in, uh, or which is more appealing to the audience that they're in front of. And I think that is probably the the worst knock I would I would give on McIntyre is that he does pivot a little bit between Aristotelianism and Thomism depending on who he's talking to, and he often gets away with it because there are so few people who are Aristotelians or Thomists that very rarely is the audience likely to notice or care. Uh, but I notice and care, and part of the reason why when I said you need something beyond Marxism, I said Plato and not Aristotle is that I think Plato does a better job of this. Plato uh, does identify different kinds of souls, but he doesn't treat some of these souls as uh, fundamentally inferior. 
He argues that women can have gold souls. And in his ideal city, there's no slavery. In the Republic, he describes a, a city in which the producers are free friends and helpmates to the guardians. So I think there's a version of Plato which escapes some of those things. That's not to say that every version of Plato does, every interpretation or every dialogue, certainly not the laws. But I think in the Republic, you can see versions of a position which might escape some of the things we associate with Aristotle. And in Callipolis, you have a city where people are driven by either a kind of bronze desire for pleasure, comfort, luxury, a silver desire for honor, status, and a gold desire for wisdom or knowledge or truth. And that in practice, the city requires all of these types. It can't really get by with just one. And so to have a city that can sustain is also to have a city which, in a pluralistic way, incorporates all of those types and satisfies each of the types enough that those types go along with the continued maintenance of the city. If any one of the types is too heavily neglected, then the thing starts to break down. And so I think that in many ways, Callipolis is an example of a kind of illiberal pluralism. That's not to say that Plato is uh, totally pluralistic. There are lots of things that Plato thinks would result in the destruction of the pluralism and therefore that he thinks have to be rooted out. So he's, he's very critical of the poets because he thinks they uh, get people a little bit too antsy and a little bit too interested in things that might not be good for them. But I do think that it's a noteworthy example, and it's often run down a lot by contemporary liberals in part because of, of I think, the fun, what's fundamentally attractive about it, which is that it is an image of a city in which there are different types of people who do all get satisfied in a way which regards each of them as valuable and gives each of them a level of respect, and yet doesn't do it on the basis of any kind of individualism, doesn't heavily emphasize the market. And so that's where I, I, would, I would tend to be inclined to go. I, I like a lot of what's in Plato and probably more than most people think that I should. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a very um, clear you know, explanation. And I, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's very kind of appealing in lots of ways. And I, the, the only thing that kind of comes to mind, in, you know, as a first response to that is the, is the question of the city. You know, I mean, I, I read a lot of Illich, obviously, I've been working with Illich, and I was just writing something about institutions again uh, a couple of days ago. And Illich makes this point, which I hadn't kind of picked up on enough before, really, to my mind, which is to do with the relationship between institutions and the city. Like, I mean, first of all, we have to say cities do not resemble like Athens today. You know, cities are not, you know, there is no kind of idea of civic friendship um, such that one is also a friend of the city and that one protects each other, not only because you're friends with them, but because, you know, you have a, you all have a vested interest in preserving the city. Cities are often places where there is enormous addiction, enormous homelessness, you know, in, in all Western cities, uh, particularly probably the UK and the US. Obviously, some US cities are now seemingly in kind of terminal decline, or at least parts of them seem to be. Um you know where there's a lot of disruption, a lot of uh, violence and antagonism, and 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 so on. And they can, you know, parts of them are not policed, and and so on. So we're a long way from that idea of the city. But the Illichian point I wanted to make was to do with 
where institutions are located and institutions in a way, they may not always be situated in the city. And I think a lot of when we talk about contemporary uh, capitalism, one of the issues is that we don't have those material bases in the same way, right? The factories, of course, still exist, but they, they don't exist in Manchester so much as they exist in obscure parts of China, right? Where, you know, companies have suicide nets and there's a kind of ban on, you know, reporting on what's going on there, or they're in kind of, you know, horrific situations or export processing zones or, you know, places that are not visible from the standpoint of, of the, the description that Marx is making in the 19th century in particular. Um, also, the locations of finance capital are diffuse and diverse. The elites themselves live in random places like gated communities or islands or whatever, like Silicon Valley is, is a place, but it's also completely deracinated. Um, but the institution has something of a metropolitan character for Illich and, and to which he opposes almost everything that he would value, <laughs> such as an emphasis on the present, an emphasis on risk and surprise and the I-thou relationship and conviviality and all of these things that he celebrates. And, and you know, we've talked a bit about this in relation to Ted Kaczynski when we looked at the Unabomber Manifesto. And I suppose, you know, what happens when you, you no longer have, let's say, a thriving city in which the majority of people are, you know, uh, as you say, almost enjoying their roles, you know, people are differentiated by by uh, their their character and their interests and their, their social roles, but it, but it functions, you know, more or less, right? There's always going to be the old problem. I mean, you know, you go to any small town in Britain and there's usually the, the lock-up or the keep you know, where you put the, the random drunk person who's being a dick that night, you know, and you just put them in the cage for the night and, you know, take them out in the morning, right? There's always going to be minor social problems um, because human beings are, are unpredictable and, 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 and stupid um, on occasion, <laughs> and everybody is. Um, but I suppose it's that what happens when you only have bureaucracies and institutions, uh, which many people work for and, after all, become institutionalized and become the bearers of the institution, and we can talk about structure all you like, but structures are also merely composed of people. You know, they, they, if you took all the people out of a structure, it would no longer uh, exist except as an, as an idea. Um, I think the way in which the city is, has become debased in this form as no longer living uh, entity, um, but rather a place or a non-place of institutions and bureaucracies um, is part of the is part of the problem, the thing we have to diagnose. And it's no wonder that everybody more or less has the occasional fantasy about escape. You know, I mean, it's we talked about it in relation to America and the pioneer and this fantasy of the wilderness. Um, but I think, you know, we're both tethered to this kind of non-place, the internet. Um, we often live in cities, um, but they're not, they're not remotely these kind of um, living entities that, um, that are kind of implicitly reflected in your description of Plato, which is which is otherwise extremely sympathetic. Yeah. I like to think a lot about the Roman Empire, in part because the Roman Empire is a state which is enormous in scale mm. and which often uses a lot of Greek philosophy as touch points in legitimation narratives, especially for educated parts of the population. And the way that it incorporated local elites by 
you know, largely leaving the affairs of individual cities to the local elites who ran those cities, uh, having certain obligations that those cities would have to the province or to uh, the the uh, central ad administration, but otherwise tending to leave them alone. The, the trouble with the Roman period is that that only works because there is no need to politically integrate the great mass of the population which remains in the slave class or remains uh, outside of that mechanism. And I look at kind of European integration and I see some of the, some, some similar aspects. Local elites in individual European states are plenty well satisfied by the European Union as an arrangement and would be satisfied with a much closer union as an arrangement because they still have sufficient discretion in their local affairs. Uh, and the ways in which they don't have local discretion don't particularly bother them because they tend to service their own economic interests anyway. You know, the Roman state, insofar as it circumscribes what you can do, it tells you, well, you can't go to war with neighboring cities. You can't cause trouble within the province. You can't seize land from other cities or, or uh, nearby estates. That will get you in trouble. That, that set of rules largely benefits the aristocrats in the provinces because it keeps them safe from each other. So... Uh, they're, they're, they do lose some autonomy by going into the Roman Empire, but not any autonomy which really is valuable to them. They're mainly losing the autonomy to cause trouble for themselves and each other. And the inability of the European Union to bring in the great mass of the people into that project heavily mirrors the inability of the Roman Empire to bring in the great mass of people into that project. And how would that be done? I think that it's very difficult to do because so little of the decision-making power in both cases is with those people in the first instance that they don't have very much leverage from which to negotiate politically. And I think to a large degree, the European Union has tried to see how far it can get without doing it. <laughs> if If there were to be an effort to do it, I think it would have to involve some kind of set of economic rights for ordinary people so that they would have a position in society that is uh, not altogether different from the position which the landed aristocrat has. The landed aristocrat has a guaranteed uh, amount of wealth from an estate, which allows them the freedom to pursue whatever it is that interests them. Uh, that's, I think, the thing which principally sets apart the aristocrats in the Roman Empire from everybody else. And we might be approaching a point at which we could guarantee some kind of comparable set of economic rights, but there's no political energy to demand that and no real mechanism by which it could be demanded. And the struggle over the last 10 years in the European Union indicates that it's nowhere close to happening. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it's interesting to think about the the reasons why the Roman Empire <laughs> falls, and I mean, without getting in too into that kind of all civilizations crumble, you know, time is cyclical thing. Um, you know, obviously, people like Philip K. Dick think that the the Roman Empire never ended, and in fact, we're still living in the in the aftermath. Sometimes I I wonder about this too. I mean, I read a lot about Gnosticism and. It strikes me there are enormous numbers of parallels <laughs> between the, the the strange esoteric heresies, um, you know, that people 
had and and were were punished for and and some of the ideas that people have today with many of which are the the same ideas um which again kind of stresses the the human nature uh not really being very different uh thing um yeah i i wonder you know it just what comes to mind when you're speaking is also like in in britain at the moment you know we're having a kind of labor crisis you know so we've talked about this a bit before and I was speaking to a friend of mine who runs a cafe and he was saying he can't get any stuff. Like no one wants to work. And this is kind of a common thing. Like they can't get anyone to work in the cafe. Um, he suggested that it was largely because of Brexit. So he was saying that 60% of people in London came from the EU and now they're not here. Um, and the kind of implication is that there they're either aren't enough you know, native British people or that the native British people don't want to work. Um, and I think things like furlough and various kind of welfare um, uh, situations have created uh, a situation which many people don't particularly feel the need to work. Um, and there is no kind of general encouragement to do so. Like, why would you if you had just about enough money to to not work? Um, and and I think this is like very interesting, right? Because there's no higher reason why anyone should, right? If you could pay and sit at home and watch Netflix and, you know, maybe you'd have to be very frugal and so on. Maybe claim some benefits, housing benefits, and maybe you'd have to work like a few hours a week. But if you didn't really have to, like, why would you? If there's no bigger narrative than your individual life, let's say, or your family life. There is no city. There's no value in work itself anymore. Like nobody particularly thinks, you know, because things like stable jobs have disappeared, like the kind of jobs that my father did. He had the same job for 40 years and then retired and had a pension. And the the kind of general condition of precarity um, also flips into this, I think which is a kind of, you know, and of course you have COVID as well on top of this, you know, and the, the experience of the last two years where people were, were in a way told to stay at home, <laughs> apart from the people who are running around delivering food to people who could stay at home <laughs> and all those people who are working in kitchens and producing all this takeaway food. Um, and I wonder, you know, is this the precondition for a, 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 a rather different era in a way um one that is even less committed to even the most limited notion of the city or participation or social life uh in in which wherever people have landed up is now their kind of implicit prison <laughs> however gilded um which is quite a depressing thought really yeah i think If you give people a situation where they don't have to work, if they're working, it's either because they have some kind of commitment to the community and they can tell that if they don't contribute, the community as a whole will be worse off. And you don't really have that if only because cities are so large now that if you don't do anything, there is no visible way in which the city is worse because you're not doing anything. Uh, even... Universities are large enough that if you don't do anything, 
it's not obvious that the university becomes a worse place because you don't do anything. Um, and a lot of people do this. A lot of people do pass off as many students as they can onto other people and try to do as little as possible in the university. And uh, nobody really notices. And that's how they get away with it. I think the, the other reason that people might work uh, that would be akin from, say, just trying to survive might, uh, and this is where I do think Aristotle has some value, it, it might have something to do with virtuous craftsmanship. So for, for Aristotle, the crafts are different ways of discovering truth and bringing what you've learned about the truth into the world. And there are a lot of people who might be in some way pulled toward that, pulled toward the arts, pulled toward uh, those kinds of things. But generally, that stuff doesn't line up with what the market demands or with what uh, you know, other people necessarily want or need. Very often, if you were trying to make the very, very best version of a pair of shoes, it would take you entirely too long to make enough shoes for everybody in the town. And that's in large part why you get this, this division between virtuous craftsmen and vulgar craftsmen in Aristotle and why the city inevitably has vulgar craftsmen. Because if the virtuous craftsmen to do it in a virtuous way can't be financially dependent on it, can't be in a position of having to make enough of the thing to supply the town, has to be able to do it as a leisure activity. And there are plenty of arts that are compatible with that, but very few of them have to do with meeting the basic fundamental needs of running something. Uh, and I, I think that is why we continue to fall back on the stick of if you don't perform these jobs, then you will be impoverished or you'll be made to suffer. And we fall back on it because we no longer have an ability to make a civic commitment feel rewarding. And many of these jobs are not plausibly crafts in the first instance. So they're not the kind of work in which a person can feel like they are accessing in some partial or liminal way the truth. Um, and I think that's, that's part of the tragedy of the human condition is that we as people need certain jobs done. And these jobs are not rewarding jobs. And we can't make them rewarding. And as our towns and cities scale up, it becomes, they become less rewarding. When it's a very small community, you can make almost anything feel significant. Around the house, a lot of stuff that you would never do for money makes sense to you. Scrubbing the toilet so that the other people in your family have a nice toilet, that makes sense to an enormous number of people, and they're not paid to do that. But as soon as you get to a point where you can't really see the difference you're making, nobody really is appreciating you, then that goes away. And then the only way to make the, the activity valuable is, to, is, is if it's a craft. And then too often it's not a craft, or even if it is a craft, to do it in the virtuous way would be to, uh, to not perform the social function that's required. And that's where we get stuck. And that's where we've been stuck for a while. Yeah. And I think the, the questions of like degrowth and kind of limiting consumerism, I mean, it seems they seem, you know, difficult. I mean, there is some there feels something kind of like horribly grimly deterministic about like a world that just produces this amount of things, you know, like what would it mean to kind of scale back and, and to have fewer, but 
nicer things that were made to last for example that everybody could afford and that were like beautifully made and you know every everything slowed down massively um you know it it seems very very difficult to imagine that world from the one we're in because the one we're in is just filled with this stuff and with people doing this kind of work and i mean and even when they're not doing it then the the kind of specter of automation hovers over uh, if it's not already in place in many situations and then so we have economies where value and worth is determined by the level of social interaction that's involved in a job right so people do get job satisfaction from interacting with other people like so those jobs that have a lot of um often at least you know interaction with 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 others like caring professions you know things that are to do with a kind of face to face um, you know, even where, where, for example, teachers moan a lot, <laughs> um, but nevertheless, they, you know, the, the, the idea at least would be that one feels that one is doing something socially worthwhile, I suppose. And, and of course there are many jobs in which this isn't true. And it's been watered down a lot too, I think, because of the revolving door character of these care jobs where you're supposed to care for an enormous number of people you barely have time to get to know and then they move on yeah and i mean at the beginning of the covid crisis like no one was regulating like the agency workers right in the uk so this was like the the big scandal at the beginning was that you know because care homes had been largely privatized and nurses were largely agency workers and they were traveling all over the place and and even though people were saying you know oh we need to to shut down hospitals and care homes and people you know they'd sort of forgotten about these like diffuse arrangements uh it seemed um or no one thought about it um um because that that level of precarity and and you know dissemination has had just been accepted i suppose as opposed to you were working in the same place with the same people um yeah I don't know. I mean, I I don't know how we would ever get back a notion of the city or community or or value or worth um, unless we were kind of forced to become radically self-sufficient somehow, <laughs> which might be a kind yeah. of interesting <laughs> moment. Yeah, I think we could, to some degree, bolster civic commitment by increasing the set of economic rights that the state gives people. But... That would be a temporary bolstering because within a few generations of giving any particular right, the right becomes a taken for granted and ceases to produce the same level of civic commitment that it does initially, which is a big part of why any any right that you grant it has to be granted on the basis that it's a sustainable right to grant independent of it fostering that civic commitment. Because if it's dependent on the civic commitment, that will be gone in three generations. In a century, nobody will really remember or care or appreciate the the effort that went into winning that right. Yeah. States often get on a bit of a treadmill with that. They just keep granting different kinds of rights that seem significant when they're granted, but lose their relevance to people. Not to say that the rights aren't important, but they lose their relevance for securing legitimacy uh, with new audiences of, of people. States are always having to come up with new reasons once, once they start going, well, you should feel good about being a citizen because you have great rights, then it's important for the state to constantly make sure you have more rights than citizens of other states have. And insofar as they get rights, then your state has to give more 
it was easy for the United States to argue it gave lots of rights that other people didn't get early on. It's, it's much harder lately, and that's been one of the causes of, of legitimation problems in the United States. But yeah, yeah, I think yeah, in the future society where there's in, in some kind of future society where people are free to, to do crafts, that's a highly individualistic thing in the absence of that sense of community. So I can imagine a situation where either there's a huge disaster which plunges us back into the more uh, meaningful small societies, or we automate and move into some kind of phase where everybody is really focused on craft and on doing their, their craft in the way they think is best, uh, independent of what anybody else thinks. And it, you know, there's something almost a little bit walled off and hostile about that. Uh, and I'm not sure how much I like it. No, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking the small communities might be. <laughs> but then I can't imagine getting to the small communities without a disaster. So I, I feel- That's true. I, I feel wedged in. So on that note of me feeling wedged in, we're going to wrap up this, this, uh, this episode. We're going to go do the B. So thank you guys so much for listening. And we hope you'll, you'll join us on Patreon. And, and whether you can or whether you can't, have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.